Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Have you noticed that there's seemingly a lot of talk out there these days about loneliness, about people being lonely, lack of connection or disconnection amongst friends, family members, peer groups. I don't know if this is just me, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this. You can email me, scott, at cknw.com, or you can text 331-BUZZ. That's the buzz line you can call there, leave a voicemail, or, or just, yeah, shoot a text. But I'd love to know, are you lonely? Are you experiencing loneliness? Because I'm seeing articles and blog posts and social media stuff just about how like loneliness is becoming... Um, more prevalent. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're online more, we're busier, people are just at this rapid stage of life. And loneliness is a thing that people are experiencing. There's a really great article in the New York Times that was written about uh, the epidemic of loneliness. And I thought that this would be a, an interesting conversation to have. So uh, please welcome Pete Bombacci. I hope I'm saying that right, Pete. He is the founder of the Gen Well Project. Good morning, Pete. How are you? I'm great, Scott, and you got that perfect, so thanks very much. Okay, great. I'm glad to know it. Let's start right here. <laughs> Can you explain to me or, or explain to us what is the GenWell Project? Well, the GenWell Project is Canada's human connection movement, and since 2016, we've been working to educate, empower, and catalyze Canadians around the importance of their social health and its impact on their mental and physical well-being. Okay, that sounds good. And so, like, this obviously has to do with uh, exactly what we're talking about here, right? Like loneliness, connection, disconnection. H has there been um, an uptick or, or like, a gr growth in loneliness? Or is it just that me or other people like yourself are just more aware of it? Well, it's a really great comment, Scott. You know, at the end of the day, loneliness has been around. Uh, Dr. Robert, uh, Put uh, Robert Putnam you know, wrote a book at the end of the 90s called Bowling Alone, that really has shown that, you know, since about the mid 60s, we've been increasingly disconnected as a society. I think what happened is a global pandemic came along and all of a sudden this disconnection became very real because, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, so many of our habits and rituals each day had us around people. It didn't mean we felt connected, but we were around people. And so the pandemic was the real wake-up call. And I think that's why, as we come out of the global pandemic, we're starting to recognize that when you rip people out of each other's lives for two years, now we're recognizing the devastating impact that it can have on both our mental and our physical well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have tons of questions there as well around like, you know, the, the physical implications, because I think that's yeah. something that we kind of take for granted. But, you know, we, we keep mentioning this word connection and, and being sort of around people. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, the New York Times article that I sort of mentioned about, you know, the lifespan of loneliness and how how prevalent this is this is becoming. But one of my questions is. What's the difference between being around people and connecting with people? Because, yeah, I, I, like I'm around people all the time, yet I still sometimes feel lonely, you know, and feel like I don't have the same connections with some of the guys that I hang out with versus some of the guys that I grew up with. Is there a distinction there? Absolutely, Scott. And I think, you know, everything you just vo uh, uh, voiced is is you're human, like all of us, you know. We can be 
physically isolated, which I think most of us understand. And oftentimes we think about it in the context of a senior who may have lost loved ones who, or who may be physically isolated from people because they live alone and all those other things that uh, can happen to somebody as they get older. What I think we're talking about and what I think the world is truly waking up to now is a lack of belonging. So you can be in a crowd, you can be in an office, you can be in a classroom, you can be in your own home, you can be on your street, and you can think differently, act differently, sound different, you know, so many ways in which we can feel disconnected from other people. I, you know, share a personal story. I lost my dad when I was 13, and I felt I felt disconnected from other people because I always felt like I was the kid without a dad. And so we can have this, you know, if we lose a job, we get divorced, you know, we have financial pressure, so many things. This isn't about physical isolation and it never has been, but that's how people understood it. And I think this is the wake up call that we're all having on the other side of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And another really interesting thing that I've sort of brought up and tried to tried to figure out is. You know, like there's so much online connection, you know, like I, I've yeah. kept up with, I'm at this stage where, you know, I'm 42. And so, you know, uh, had 20 year, 10 year high school reunion, 20 year high school reunion. And in so many cases, I'm like realizing, oh, I, I know everything that's going on in all of these people's lives because of social media. And because of that, I feel aware of what is happening in my community and aware of what is happening in the people's lives in my community. But that it's not connection either. And I think we sort of get that confused. It's like, oh, I'm, I know what's going on. I feel in touch, but it's not, it's like not, it, that it's almost worse, right? Because we think we're getting this thing and it, it's not a replacement for actual human connection. Well, Scott, you just said it all. We often say that, you know, digital connectivity is a great supplement to human interaction. But when we start to think that it can replace it, I think that's where the, the challenges come. When we think of social media, that passive connectivity can lead to a greater sense of loneliness when we turn off the phone and we recognize that we spent the last three hours passively engaging, but that we are still alone on the other side of that time. I think an interesting thing during the global pandemic, there was a study that was done even about, uh, you know, digital connection through, I'll say, Zoom or Skype or uh, Microsoft Teams, whatever platform you're using. And the brain activity face to face is nine times as much as when we're on that digital connection. So even when we've thought that we've replaced some forms of connection with other people with a digital platform, the reality is we all need human connection. And this is what we've been driving for for the last seven years at the Genwell Project is to help people understand these facts because we've educated people on exercise for 50 years. We've educated people on eating well for 80 years. We've talked about sleep and water and don't drink too much and don't smoke, but we've never articulated about social health and social connection. And that's the wake up call. And that's why we're trying to build Canada's human connection movement. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned like the exercise thing. We've educated people and we've educated ourselves on that. No one doubts that. Right. But even still, even though we have uh, physical repercussions from loneliness, loneliness is still this thing that is, like you say, it feels kind of lagging. But maybe talk about that. How our mental health and our social uh, our social health affects our physical health, like you were mentioning earlier. 
Well, yeah, I think naturally we all think of mental health issues like anxiety or depression that can come from a lack of connection. It can also lead to uh, early onset dementia. But when we think about the physical health impacts, it can increase your risk of heart disease, a type 2 diabetes. It's certainly addiction and suicide, obesity. So when we, we really understand what loneliness does to us, when we have chronic or persistent loneliness, that increases inflammation in the body. And that inflammation can really lead to just about every type of illness that we face. But I will throw one thing out there, Scott. Loneliness is not a mental health issue. And I think what we need to do is better understand loneliness. Loneliness is no different than eating or drinking when we're hungry or thirsty. It's your body and your brain saying to you, you need social connection. So we, not, we need to start putting this conversation in the context of, hey, we all can feel disconnected from other people. We can all feel that sense of loneliness. And if we take action early enough, if we go and get a coffee, if we go for a walk to the dog park, if we go and talk to a neighbor, if we go and call an old friend or an old colleague, all these things are step to help, steps to helping us address loneliness before we have a mental or physical health issue. And that that's really about the swimming upstream and saying, look, if we can educate society like we have on physical activity and eating well, I think we can address so much of this challenge because people are more apt to say, oh, my God, this isn't an issue. This is just my body and my brain telling me I need to call up Scott and go for a coffee. Yeah, man, that I like. I love what you're saying. You're hitting the nail right on the head. It's almost this like uh, uh, an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure thing. But one of the one thing sort of occurred to me, and again, I've been I'm quite open about this. I've been talking about these type of things in therapy and and that type of thing for a long time. Why is there? Maybe you can speak to this, Pete. Why is there this idea that if I reach out? to somebody in my life, one of my friends or somebody I grew up with and, and say, Hey, like I'm, I'm kind of lonely. Do you, can we, and you don't have to say it like that, obviously, but Hey, could we grab a coffee? Could we grab a beer that there, there's this perception that, uh, stoicism or the ability to be independent is viewed as a strength and the need to be around people can be viewed as a weakness. Does, do you feel that? Is that just me? And it's this, that feels like this incredible wall to climb. Yeah, I think there's a lot of anxiousness out there about fear of rejection or, you know, maybe even a little social anxiety coming out of the global pandemic. But what the research really does validate is that we all underestimate or overestimate how much people we think people don't want to talk to us when in actual fact as a social spe species most people are more than happy to engage in a conversation old friends strangers neighbors. So what I think we need to, and this is again, and I hate to keep banging the drum, Scott, but no, this please is why do. we're trying please to create, do. Yeah. We're, we're trying to build a national movement here that gives everybody permission to call up that old friend, to talk to that neighbor they haven't spoken to one door or two doors or three doors up the street or in the condo. You know, we're trying to give people the information and the facts that actually say, and the one I throw out, we just finished a Talk to a Stranger Week. We've been telling people for 50 years not to talk to strangers when the research shows mm. that that increases your optimism, happiness, trust, you know, community, sense of belonging, reduced sense of loneliness. Why are we telling people not talk to strangers? And so there's so many little tidbits in this information. Uh, 
Dr. Kith Ricard out of Simon Fraser University is leading the research that's developing the Canadian Social Connection Guidelines. He's also the chair of the Genwell Project Scientific Advisory Panel. Those guidelines will be coming out by the end of this year, which will now give every Canadian the real facts and information to say, hey, you need to be taking this information far more seriously. And when we are all aware of this, when we all recognize that we are in this conversation together, I think it will make it easier for people to reach out and say, and, and, and again, to your point, Scott, you don't need to reach out and say, hey, I'm really lonely, Scott. Can we go for a coffee? It's recognizing, hey, Scott, you want to go for a coffee? Because we all benefit from human connection. Let's shift it from a crisis mentality to a positive, proactive one, as you said earlier, because when we all recognize we're in this together, it makes it easier for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's enjoyable. Like, who doesn't want to have a, a drink yeah. with an old friend, right? Like, it's not like it's a hard thing to convince me to get together with, with an old friend. Uh, Pete Bombacci, he is the founder and executive director of the Gen Well Project, genwellproject.org. It's Gen with a G, like generation, genwellproject.org. Tons of information and resources there. And also, like, a really important and really accessible conversation that I think is relevant to so many people. Thanks so much, Pete. And I'd love to have you back and talk again because this is something that I feel and I know a lot of people relate to and can feel. So um, thanks again for your time and for the work that you're doing. And uh, I hope to talk with you again. Ask God, thank you, because it's these conversations that awaken a world to this, this important message. So thank you to you for having us on. Good morning and welcome back to The Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz, filling in all this week, and we're talking about foreign buyers ban and how it hasn't really made a huge effect on the market. Does that Have you felt that? Is that something you're experiencing as you may have been trying to, to purchase a home? Uh, helping us uh, unpack a lot of this is Thomas Davidoff. He's the director of the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Thanks so much for being back on the show, uh, Tom. How are you this morning? Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, happy uh, almost New Year. Yeah, and to you as well. So uh, a lot of people starting to weigh in that, you know, we've we've been a, uh, through this for a year now, and uh, it looks like so far, at least, this foreign buyer's ban hasn't really done much to, to change the market or make housing more affordable. Now, obviously, there's a lot to unpack. Is it that? Is there a bunch of other, you know, sort of variables affecting this? Where, where do you net out on this? Well, first of all, it's super hard to know what the impact's been because, you know, usually if you want to study the impact of something, you look for an experiment. Like when you want to know if fertilizer makes crops grow, you take a lot of land, you put some fertilizer on some of it and nothing on the uh, other land, and everything else is held constant, and you see uh, how crops did where there was fertilizer. The problem is here, so much has been changing, right? We've had uh, all the supply announcements from the feds, and of course, uh, dramatic interest rate changes. So to see changes in house prices and say, ah, it must be the foreign buyer ban would be hard anyway. Now, I will say it's hard to believe there's been much of an impact uh, because after the foreign buyer tax came into play and additionally the speculation and empty homes taxes, there just haven't been a lot of foreign buyers in greater Vancouver. Now, there's foreign and there's foreign, uh, but foreign and subject to a ban a uh, very small part of the market after the foreign buyer tax. So hard to believe there's been a big effect. Right. So do you see this as something that uh, we should be keeping 
or something that it's kind of like, well, this is kind of a waste. Why, why do we even have it? Maybe we should get rid of it. Let the experiment run a little bit longer. What do you think is kind of the next step for the government? Well, in my personal opinion, we've got uh, empty homes and speculation taxes and Airbnb bans, all of which uh, or all of which say, you know, housing really kind of has to be occupied by locals. And it is. We don't have a lot of empty homes in greater Vancouver. So empty homes taxes are what you do to make sure homes are locally occupied. Now, if an investor in another country wants to buy a property in greater Vancouver and rent it to a local, you know, someone can argue that's denying locals uh, ownership opportunity, but it's providing rental housing. The key issue is, does the housing, is it occupied by a local? I don't think the ownership or the nationality of the owner ought to be the subject of a test. Okay, interesting stuff. So what else could make a difference here if this is one of the things that we're feeling like this isn't making and it's hard to say like we've sort of unpacked but what what should we be doing to make housing more affordable well i've always said uh that the two levers the government could pull on are uh, zoning and taxes and a lot has been done on both of those right there is a foreign buyer tax there is an empty homes tax Uh, And we're starting to see a lot of action on zoning. Now, those zoning uh, reforms that are allowing multifamily housing and single family neighborhoods throughout the region, that we're not going to see those effects for a couple of years because it takes time for supply to come online. Uh, You know, if the government wanted to go, you know, whole hog, in my opinion, we could do more with taxes. There's lots of people who own super expensive homes and pay almost nothing in income in uh, income tax. So you could say, look, if you have a $3 million property, you got to pay a percent of that, say, three thirty k a year in taxes to the government. And if it's not income tax, there's a property tax surcharge. You could make some extra revenue that way, cut income and sales taxes. We could generally increase property taxes. But I think the public appetite for higher property taxes to fund an allowance for lower income renters Well, I think probably a good idea, uh, not something I I would suspect there'd be political support for. Yeah, it feels like the idea, you know, when you sort of put it out there generally as increased property taxes, uh, for sure, that would be why, you know, I was going to say my question was going to be like, so why, why don't we do this? But of course, the public appetite for it wouldn't be there. But is there a way that we could increase taxation on more expensive properties and have lower taxes on, you know, like a lower tax rate? Just kind of like we do with income tax. The more you make, the more you pay. The more expensive your property is worth, the more the more you pay that way. Like, is there a sort of middle ground solution there? There is. And in fact, uh, the NDP brought in uh, a few years ago a progressive property tax. So remember that additional school tax. Uh, it's not a huge percentage, but it is a higher percentage paid on homes above a certain value. Our property transfer tax is progressive. So, you know, I, I think government has kind of picked the low-hanging fruit. The one other one, I, again, I would mention is we could raise billions of dollars a year in greater Vancouver uh, just by making sure that if you own a super fancy house, uh, you have to pay uh, a reasonable level, say 1% of the home value in total tax to Canada. And we know there's a lot of people who don't do it. So, you know, a couple billion dollars a year 
uh, would not be a bad source of funding for affordable housing initiatives. Yeah, is there a worry that that drives away some of the some of the um, economic power of BC? If it's like we have these people here who can afford this type of thing, if we overtax them, they might take their money somewhere else. You know, one percent. I mean, you know, uh, you're not making a lot of money if you're paying less than thirty k a year in tax, unless you have an amazing tax accountant. So. Uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of CEO potential guys who are going to not come here because they might have to pay 30k a year in income tax. There may be, though. You know, there, uh, entrepreneurs may make uh, pay all of their taxes uh, through through corporations. There could be some costs. You know, uh, th- there's no free lunch. So, um, you know, the most efficient thing is probably just raise property taxes, cut income and sales taxes. That takes money from owners, gives it to renters, and gives a bit of a juice to the economy, uh, all of which is great for affordability. But as we've discussed, that's just a political non-starter. Right. Uh, Thomas, one of the things that I have uh, quoted you, because we've spoken several times, and obviously the housing thing, it's like this nonstop, complicated, multifaceted conversation that's tied to so many things here in the Lower Mainland. But you have said it before uh, to me in interviews and stuff, as we talk about these various solutions of uh, different taxes, different zoning, all these type of things that, look, it's a wonderful place to live. And there's a lot of people out there who are well-educated, very skilled, and have a lot of money. And those people, as the world changes, are going to want to come to places where it's great and safe and clean. And we are one of those places. And, you know, you can tax and legislate and zone as much as you want, but that is never going to change. And I've kind of, I've, I've used that in this conversation so mm-hmm. many times with people that that's kind of the overarching theme here. Do you still think that, that it's like, whatever we do here, it's, it's pushing against the tide that this is happening and global it's, it's global, right? Absolutely. Right. Uh, immigration into Canada, uh, in my opinion, is a good thing, but it's a big factor. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to be. We've got a democracy. Uh, we've got a reasonably strong business climate. We've got fantastic natu- natural amenity. And those amenities make it, you know, put a limit on how much can get built. And uh, all of that spells uh, price and rent growth over time. Uh, and uh, really an affordability squeeze for people who aren't affluent. And that's that's a, a challenge. And, you know, it's it's the upstream that we're swimming against or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, especially, you know, as you sort of look at how things have changed and what the future of we like what we want our, our city and our province and our country to look like in the future. But uh, it's a, ba- a delicate balance of a lot of things. But, yeah, I have I've sort of used that as a framing sort of uh, argument anytime I sort of bring this housing thing up is that any of these sort of solutions that we come up with, as long as we have immigration and as long as Canada is a great place to live, you know, it's going to be an expensive place because people want to be here. Thomas Davidoff is director of UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Thanks so much for the information and for the time this morning. Always appreciate having you on the show. My pleasure and a happy uh, new year to you and the listeners. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz. I'm filling in all Excuse me, I'm filling in all week. And uh, one of the things that we have been talking about a lot over the last year, 2023, and will continue to be a conversation into 2024. We've talked about it this week. We talked about it in the months that have passed a lot. 
the homelessness problem in our city. Uh, there was a story earlier this week about, unfortunately, someone who passed away in a tent that caught on fire. Uh, there have we've we're all familiar with the story of the decampment along East Hastings and uh, other issues as they grow and spread and sort of move around uh, the lower mainland. And a lot of people talk about this and throw out ideas and potential solutions and how viable are those really? What actually could we do to help or make a difference? What would make a difference? Because a lot of people say a lot of different things without, I think, really actually understanding the problem and um, how we could ha- It's complicated. It's one of these really complicated things, not unlike housing, which we were talking about earlier. It's multifaceted, plays into a lot of the different uh, elements of our city. Uh, Mark Brand is the CEO uh, of A Better Life Foundation. It's a social impact. He's a social impact entrepreneur, chef, and a professor of innovation. And he joins us now to talk about what we can actually do to help the homelessness situation. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to hear your voice and nice to be back on the show. Great. Yeah. Great to have you. Um, What do you think people get wrong about homelessness and unhoused people in the lower mainland? I mean, how long is the segment? We got a few (laughs) or or we we got we got 10 minutes, right? About that. Yeah. To to talk about the, you know, the issues, first of of all, you know, of course, we send our condolences out to all the folks who have passed over the winter uh, across the country, and we continue to lose people who are in tents because they have absolutely nowhere else to go. And I think the first thing that we get wrong is an assumption that uh, people are addicts, right? So we, we like to play the blame game because it's easier with our guilt to put it in a box, to just say, hey, this is the problem. I understand it. And, you know, if these people could just, you know, quote, unquote, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, we could solve it. And I can say after working in this neighborhood for 18 years and uh, running organizations ground level in the center of the downtown east side, uh, that is absolutely untrue for, for all reasons and manner of reasons. And the largest issues that contribute to street level homelessness are uh, poverty, poverty being the number one reason and uh, the lack of resource. And then secondly, uh, mental health issues. And of course, addiction does come into play. But I think what we, we need to understand is who can actually make the changes and the differences. And there's organizations you can easily support, but also understanding what our government's capable of and what they're not. Yeah. And I think that 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 is a huge thing. We've actually heard that several times that, you know, it's really easy and we're really quick to sort of say mental health. uh, Riverview is a word that gets tossed around quite a bit. Addiction, those type of things. So what do you think is a a viable tactic? And again, I get we only have so much time. It's a super complicated issue. But where would you start at addressing this issue or, or fixing this issue? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted and very layered, but actually really uncomplicated. You know, we could talk about all the reasons why, but housing first. First and foremost, period, universally, globally. I've done this work everywhere. Housing needs to be provided. Secondarily, services. Services for people who need them. The fact that we have these mental health issues and that people who are identifying with these mental health issues do not have the services to support them. Yet we as individuals, if I sat down with you one-on-one, I'm asking you right now, like if somebody in your family had a mental health issue, would you do pretty much anything to help? And you know, the answer is of course going to be yes. And so we have to stop discriminating and saying it's us versus them. It's, it's really, we're all in this together. And I think the thing that I always try to hammer home with people is we are already spending three to four times more as a province, as a country to keep people unhoused, and I mean emergency services and all the things that we try to do to stem or help people directly in triage, then it would cost to actually fully house them. 
to fully house them and put wraparound services. So we already have the budget. This is not asking for new money. It's actually asking to free up budget to say, hey, let's get everybody housed. We know how to do it. We've got all of these successful trials. Giving people money actually helps them find their way back. There's studies globally. Um, and to stop criminalizing the poor, to say, you know, we're, we're going to do these things. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I love what you're saying. Like, let's stop criminalizing the poor. And I guess my my next question sort of seems like the most obvious question is, if this is so uh, assured, like we'll save money by doing this thing, why aren't we doing that? Yeah, I think the, the easy answer to that one is the way that the governments work and interact with each other. And I don't want to be, you know, the guy that blames government because that is the easy cop out. Uh, but in fact, it really truly has to be an aligned federal, provincial, municipal, and then community effort to say we are absolutely, developers included, we are going to work on getting the 1,875 or whatever the latest count is, people who are re- habitually street entrenched, housed off of our streets into a safe place, prioritizing them instead of saying, hey, I'm prioritizing the street. And I want the cleanliness and businesses as a guy who's opened 15 businesses in the city. I know it as well as anybody else, but saying, hey, no, I really want people to be safe in my city. I want these folks to get the services they need and demanding it like no, nothing short of demanding it from the people who we've elected, who have all said, you know, six terms at mayor in a row. Now I can end this and really understanding that that's not something one individual can do or one party can do. And that it has to be uh, a unilateral approach to saying, we're going to build this housing, we're going to get people housed, and not just people who are homeless, but lower and middle income folks have access to housing as well, because that's where homeless folks come from. They come from having one critical incident and not having enough funding, and I think a lot of people listening, myself included at points in my life, can understand that at one point, one paycheck made the difference between me having a place to stay and not. Yeah, the idea of not just um, getting people off the streets, but preventing people from ending up on the streets. I I love that idea as well. Now, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here for a second. What would you say to the people who would sort of hear this idea, hey, we're going to save money, we're going to house these people, we're going to provide them with all the services, that there are still uh, a percentage of people who would either A, take advantage or find ways to take advantage of that and still just, you know, remain in their addiction, not choose to get clean, still choose to live on the street, still choose um, a certain way of living, despite all of those resources and um, uh, resources and community and help and all those things being provided for them. What would you say to that? I mean, that's the single most dangerous trope that's absolutely nonsense. It's totally and utterly nonsense. And luckily, we do, we do a lot of research and studies that are easily accessible by the Internet to have a look at what people actually say, you know, real human beings. And I think the most important part of that is human beings. Over 80% of the residents in the the neighborhood that I serve in the downtown east side, I also work in Halifax, feeding people there every day. You know, across the country, we serve 3,000 people, hot, nourishing, scratch-made meals every single day for over 12 years. I work in New York City. I've worked all over the world. And over 80 to 90% of the people in the neighborhoods are perpetually homeless. We know who they are. We know their names. We know their needs. And their needs are not, I want to be homeless and stay on drugs. That's never been an answer. And so if one person said that one time, somehow this got away as an excuse for us all to look the other direction. But it simply is not the case. Now, are there active drug users on the downtown east side? Yep, there sure is. Also in every boardroom in North America, in every household. 
You know, just because an opioid has a different name doesn't mean that people aren't using them at home. You know, alcohol addiction, every other piece. If you have privilege, you are in a different category, right? You, it's okay if, you know, I'm not outside and people can see me. Well, people who are poor have all those same trauma, way more, uh, all the same issues. And, of course, they are using what they need to survive. So I think that all of those tropes are, you know, they're an unfortunate one. You can tell by the passion of my reaction. Yeah. I've been hearing it every day for 15 years. And, you know, it's time to retire that and actually point the finger where it needs to go in. The fact that we are just not doing the things we need to do to look after the citizens we should love and care about. Mark Brand, he's the CEO of Mark Brand, Inc. and founder of A Better Life Foundation. He's a social impact entrepreneur, a chef, and a professor of innovation. Thank you for saying that and for addressing that, Mark. I love, uh, I appreciate your directness and your and your passion to just simply say that, like, look, I've been doing this, and, and that's not true. Like, I, Scott, have not spent a lot of time serving on the downtown east side, and I'm not familiar with the intricacies of those things. So I appreciate having someone like you on the show again and the ability to discuss these type of things and, and hear, you know, sort of firsthand experience. So again, thank you for that. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well. And I uh, look forward to having you back on the show again soon. A pleasure. Thanks for bringing this to the forefront as always. And I hope the listeners um, are appreciating it and having these discussions at all. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.